As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! He's round the goalkeeper, he's done it! Absolutely incredible! He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was without a shadow of a doubt giving him lip. Oh, I say! It's amazing! He does it tame and tame and tame again. Break up the music! Charge a glass! Phone boxes behind the goal at the American are the threshold at which a football match becomes a boring football match, the underappreciated post-game power shift between humans and cars, the labyrinth of the Brazilian league calendar, and the least aesthetically satisfying ways to see a football propelled by a professional. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 151 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry. And alongside me for this is Charlie Eccleshare. How are you doing, Charlie? Good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. On, on Tuesday afternoon, um, while I was trying to take a day off from thinking about the innocuous rhythms of the English footballing language, you sent me a WhatsApp simply saying, what's the cliche about dribbling it in a phone box? Is it he's so good he could dribble his way out of a phone box? Why, why, why do this to me on a day off? Because so I couldn't not reply and, if, and sort if, it out for you. If only I'd known. Yeah, I, I guess though the, la- football, the language of football never sleeps. No. This is the, the deal you've made with the devil. Uh, you, you, you're on call the whole time. You know, but people, people on Twitter don't respect your, your privacy. No, I wasn't 100% sure we got it right. But it, is it, you couldn't tackle him in a phone box. Is that... Do we think that's right? I think, yeah, I think that's right. But then, what was the other suggestion you said? That He'd I not then make lo- you in a phone box. Yeah, which I then looked but up. But that seems like it was easier, if anything. Yeah, and then Rio Ferdinand had tweeted that, which made me sceptical, given mm. his taking two or three of them for a pie there, which He's not the I've never really heard anyone else say. Um, no. But there's something, yeah, there's something about being in a phone box. <laughs> yeah. on a postcard. <laughs> uh, he'd do a high press in a phone box. Anyway, who knows? Who bloody knows? Um... Joining us for Mesut Harlan Dicks this week, perhaps our furthest flung guest yet, 
a former paperboy, menswear shop assistant, comedy writer, theatre manager, English teacher, and now the BBC's South American football correspondent. It's Olegendino himself, Tim Vickery. Hello, Tim. Just a litany of my failures there, isn't it? You've, you've reminded me of that Orwell quote of any life seen from within is little more than a, than a, a series of defeats. Uh, and, and, and here we are. And I'm, I'm thinking here about the dynamics of football language. Who on earth uses phone boxes these days anyway? I know. Well, that yeah, that is a good point. M- Turning maybe on a sixpence die. in a phone box. <laughs> We've been able to do that for decades, decades. Um, do you have phone boxes in Rio? How does that work? Yeah, they're kind of big ears. That's what they're called because they're, 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 oh. they're big. Although a lot of them, you know, are, are being destroyed now. But it's one of my favourite football moments. There used to be one behind the goals in the Maracanã. Really? And I, rem- I remember... World Cup qualifier in 2000, Dario Silva for Uruguay, you know, who later played for, for Portsmouth. Yeah. He scored a goal and he ran behind and his, his method of celebration was to pick up the phone, you know, and, and pretend what that he's telling his mum. What the hell is a phone doing behind the goal? Well, you, uh, back, back in the day before mobile phones, you yeah. did kind of need them to, to, keep in, <laughs> to keep in touch with people. You know, they were very useful <laughs> things once upon a time. Would a goalkeeper, if it was if it was boring, just sort of yeah, catch yeah. up on some of his admin? Indeed. Yeah, calls. strongly getting the suspicion it was just there for choreographed goal celebrations <laughs> only and no other important reason. Um, yeah, delighted to have you. you you've, you've been in Brazil for knocking on for 30 years now. Not far off. It's, yeah, it's 20, coming up 27. It's a long, long yeah. time. In that time, given you're on the Football Clichés podcast, any sort of curious phrases from Brazilian football that have always intrigued you, like really sort of mundane, run-of-the-mill things that when you stop and think about them, think, well, why do they say this? Well, I love the one about, you know, putting, say, a free kick in the top corner. It's the corner where the owl sleeps. <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> Fucking brilliant. It's just brilliant, that, isn't it? It's, that's, that's great. That, that, uh, and there, there is a, there's a whole lexicon of, of, of football here. The one about uh, defenders, they used to say this about European defenders a lot, having uh, hard waists, thick waists, because you know they, they can't accompany, they they can't they can't do the dance. They're oh, they're I rigid, see. so uh, um, there's there's all sorts. You know, it, it's that's the great thing about learning a, a language and learning you know the the, the different ways that, that that people that people see things. And they've got they've got more mid words for kind of midfielders. More words than they have for snow, which kind of reflects the division of labour in in Brazilian midfield. You know, whereas we just say midfielder, they would they would have lots of nuances for for precisely the the, the function of, uh, of 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 that player. So it's a, it's a whole voyage. You know, getting into another culture is a, is a whole different way of of looking at football and looking at the world. Like water carrier, and we have yeah. uh, yes, yes, very specific type of midfielder. The one they use for water carrier is is piano carrier, you know, because <laughs> and that's better, isn't it? Like putting what the team gonna, on their back, gonna, sort of thing. Yeah. What are you going to do with the water? But the piano carrier, he has to he has to carry the piano in mm. order for someone else to play it. Oh, it's an extra layer. They thought about there it. There you go. There you go. There you go. And that's and that's why they rule the footballing world. So all the way from Rio de Janeiro, here's Tim Vickery with Mesut Harland Dix. Tim, tell us about your first love of football then, please. My first love, uh, and it's it's one of the things that I'll present as as the, the case for the defence for the game, 
that you have to do quite often, I think, especially when you're shaving in the morning, thinking, am I ded- going to dedicate the whole day to this activity? <laughs> um, okay, I get you. My, my first one is that it doesn't have to be good to be good, which right. is a line which is the saviour of football as an industry. Because if it had to be good to be good, why on earth would anyone watch a lower division side? You know, what, what, you, know you, you would all watch the best. But it can still function on so many levels not being good. There are, to my mind, there are two great pleasures from the game. One is emotion. You can lose yourself in the emotional twos and fro's of the game. You can be part of something bigger than yourself, the sense of community. And the other is that you can analyse it. You know, that the pieces are out there on the board and you can analyse why is team A better than team B? Why is team A's winger always receiving the ball in space? And both of these things, the emotional and the analytical, function equally well when the players are not top quality. They still work. And if, if it wasn't for that, football as an industry could not survive. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yeah. As, yeah. As soon as you chip away at the entertainment, you need to have something behind it. But when you say the word good, my mind immediately takes one of two approaches, either a horizontal approach. That is, are you talking about the entertainment value of a game or the vertical approach? Are you talking about the standard of play as in the, the, the level of talent here? Because when you think of it as, a, as an ent- entertainment industry, there seems to be always this kind of discourse about whether a game we're watching is entertaining or not, or as if that is important, which I think tallies to your point a little bit. But at what point does a game become boring? In your eyes, uh, what what's the tipping point? If you think, oh, I'm not watching this anymore. This is terrible. Or does it even exist? I think it, it depends entirely. So firstly, that phrase doesn't have to be good to be good is using the word good in two different, entirely different ways. And the first good refers to quality of play. The second good uh, refers to quality of, of experience. It, it becomes boring to quite a lot of us uh, who make our living for the game when we're on the third game of the day uh, and uh, <laughs> you know um, but if if you have an emotional involvement with that team then it's seldom boring is it it, mm. it, it really it really isn't you know um so that it, it, it's so in that sense it, it's entirely entirely subjective and and long live that that sub- subjectivity because as i say w- without that factor it the, the game just could not survive it's very interesting to me meeting people and, and and doing a radio show that has quite a big audience in the united states how the, a lot of their relationship with football is different from ours because you know we grew up with it and it was just our game Especially, I think if you're my age, if 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 you if you're younger, if you're Charlie's age, maybe this doesn't apply quite so much. <laughs> but it was our game, and and that's what it was. And then once every four years, you had the World Cup, so you, you had a look at excellence. And then you know, four or five months later, you're playing on the same shitty, muddy pitches, and it's impossible to have a good quality game. But it was our game, uh, and we just we just got on with it. Some of the people from the MLS, from the United States. Because they've grown up in a, in a globalised TV world, their entry point for the game hasn't been their local team. Their entry point has been the best football in the world, you know, from the yeah. top European mm-hmm. clubs. And it means that I've, I've had conversations with loads of them that can't get into MLS because it's not good enough, you know. Mm. So for them, that first good matters. And without the first good, there's no, there's no second good. 
And this is a problem, I think, for a lot of countries where the game is trying to develop now, countries that are trying to launch leagues now and so on. You know, now there, there is the competition with the best. No, why am I going to bother watching this rubbish when I can, I can, I can watch the best club and stay at home and, and watch the best club sides in the world? And if there's no local tradition of being part of that club, then that, that's a problem for the game in these areas. But in the heartlands, you know, I mean, why on earth would you go and watch Stockport County? It's because you've got an emotional bond. And if you're a fan of Stockport County, then nothing that Stockport County do can ever be boring. Mm-hmm. We're sort, of, we're sort of discussing this on a kind of on a kind of higher level as of sort of standards of football, Charlie. But if you if you reduce it to an individual game, at what point does a boring game break out? You know, because in theory, every game is going to be an mm. exciting one. There's always supposed to be an, an, an angle for it. But at what game? At what point do you start watching a game? And just think this is this is not happening. Like, what are the fundamental criteria? I think once a creeping sense of inevitability takes over and a lack of competitiveness, so. You know, you'll watch a game and you're kind of yeah. like, the only way for me to really get interested in this is if Aston Villa make a game of this against Manchester City. If City go 2-0 up after half an hour, I'm done because I know what's going to happen. They'll just suffocate it. It's not going to be competitive. I think it, it needs to be competitive. And mm-hmm. a lot of people feel this about all sport. They'd much rather watch a close match, even if the standard's a lot lower, than they would where it's not. Where, where it's just a complete exhibition. I've Unless seen the team is from, so entertaining. From, from some younger generation, where some figures that suggest that that doesn't apply so much anymore, which, which surprised me because they've grown up on the global superstars. So they want to see Messi score his fifth goal of the game, you know, in, in a way that, to me, the game's already done and dusted. It's not competitive, so I'll, I'll, I'll switch off. But maybe it's a kind of generation of like YouTube clips and that changes their 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 relationship with it. Well, I can definitely empathise with that because I'm ashamed to say when I was when I was younger and, and growing up with football, I loved that Galacticos Real Madrid team. I know that for football purists, they hated it. It was everything <laughs> that was wrong with football. It was Harlem Globetrotters. For me, as a young teenager, it was like I get to watch Zidane, Figo, Carlos, and I, yeah, I want them to smash Real Mallorca five 0 If I'm watching la liga on a sunday night i don't care about the competition because i'm not invested in this league in any way I, all i want is to see those really good players do silly things so i, I can empathize with that if it's not the league you most care about but for the premier league i would i would never want that growing up when watching a watching a terrible football game it would have been a very solitary experience it would have, wouldn't have had many people to kind of share this pain with but now tim I feel like we can all talk about how bad a game is at the same time and take comfort in it. Because if everyone else isn't enjoying it at the same time, then it's great. It becomes an entertaining thing in sort of turning in on itself. It's great. It's fine. It works. Yeah, I mean, there used to be that moaning on the terraces, didn't it? So, you know, if, if, if you're there in the ground, you can kind of moan collectively about how crap it is, you know. Uh, and I remember actually every, every game that I went to when, when Tottenham were going through a bad spot, You'd have some, it's usually the same bloke saying, I ain't coming no more. I, I ain't hmm. coming no more. And that, that, that was almost like part of the pleasure, you know. So uh, now people can do that on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a social media scope. Right. Tim, tell us about your, your second love of football then. My reason number two, and it's a powerful one for me, is the intrinsic meritocracy of the game. Um, I love that moment, World Cup. National anthems. I hate the national anthems. And what, there, there was a time when uh, Brazilian TV put the put the lyrics up, 
oh, translated right. the lyrics and like karaoke. Well, yeah, yeah. And, well, tr- <laughs> and, and blimey, they're bloodthirsty. They're horrible, horrible things. The national anthems. So forget that. But just the camera panning down, and you are seeing the male working class faces of that nation. Um, and one of the reasons I, I love the World Cup is it, it's a kind of like United Nations for the common man. These aren't the people who got a leg up because their parents are this, that, or the other. You know, these these are the people who who have come through, and and also, it's a game that's open to all shapes and all sizes. And in what human activity would Diego Maradona have excelled? What sporting activity? And and, and I love that, and I think that that's something that that's really really valuable. And 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 maybe we don't we don't talk about that enough. The the intrinsic meritocracy because. And I, as a as a, I will I will die a council estate kid, uh, and and as a council estate kid from the suburbs, you always feel locked out of everything. You know what I mean? And I, you know, it just used to drive me balmy. Like the sons of and daughters of famous people, who are like actors or someone like that. You know, and they've and, and they've become actors as well. And they go, oh, it's so hard to be the son of a because you always get compared. And I think you're only in the fucking room because of who your dad was. Yeah, true. It just drives me balmy when I hear this, you know. It just drives me just insane with rage. And in football, you don't get that. You know, loads of the, 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 the sons that are famous have tried. But if they ain't good enough, they ain't going to last. Mm. Bring in the new generation, dig the new breed. Uh, I want to take a kind of slightly less romantic view of this, but it's interesting that you chose international football as the kind of scenario for this. Because, Charlie, we, we, we've talked a lot about international football on this podcast as, as a kind of ongoing spectacle about whether we really care about it or not. And then players themselves have this kind of on and off relationship with international football. But when you take a step back from it, it's a bit like being picked for like your county team when you were at school or something. Only then do you realise, wow, this is the best of the best. And we, um, I, I think Tim's right. We don't sort of think about international football enough as these are the select few from the entire body of work that this nation has got football-wise. We just we get we get so obsessed with kind of who should be in or out of the squad, but we don't stop and think, wow, this is the best this country has to offer. Yeah, and, and what I love about international football as well is that it, to an extent this happens more because countries are more sophisticated, but... You can't plan in a way, you can't squad build in the way that clubs do. So you can end up with these ludicrously lopsided squads. And I think, Tim, you'll remember the Brazil squad of 2006. And it was, okay, we've got to get Kaká, Adriano, Ronaldo and Ronaldinho into the same team. Which is just completely ludicrous. Like no, apart from the Real Madrid Galacticos I mentioned earlier, no no proper team would do that so it's just this loot it can be this sort of mishmash and then teams that portugal who are amazing just never had a striker it was just this big just they never it was like ah okay well there's not a lot we can do there so i love the both yeah the fact that it is completely meritocratic it is the best of the best and it's also just a lot it feels a lot more chaotic than club football in that way i i i've been interested by this as well i mean maybe it's maybe it's even more of a widespread issue in Brazil, given just the, the scale of the of the football industry there. But I feel like there's something really imprecise, Tim, about youth development and youth scouting. Um, when we take English football, for example, you hear stories about players who were in the academies at massive clubs uh, and were quite well regarded at a young age, but didn't make it and then have gone down again and proved themselves at a lesser club and then gone on to get big moves. So there's this kind of one step back to take two steps forward kind of approach. How in Brazil it must that must be the magnitude of of 
imprecision about it. it must be times 10 how do you how on earth do you go and find these talents and nurture them to be the best they can be and indeed embody the kind of meritocracy that you talk about there, there are a lot of people looking to make money out of it you know so if if, if you're good you're gonna get found one way or one way or another you know because there, there, there are people who are who are looking for you because it, it, it's it's the link in the chain where the money comes from now, there's no great money to be made in, in South American club football. That could change in Brazil. Brazil's going through an interesting dynamic. Um, and the money is to be made as an export industry. So that, that adds an extra dimension to it because if you haven't, if the door hasn't opened with a Brazilian club, you got people who will take you abroad. And think of Jorginho at Chelsea. And his style of play, I think, was never going to fit in to a Brazilian club a few years ago, they, they, they wouldn't be looking for a player with his characteristics. So he slips through the net and he gets someone, you know, he finds someone who will take a chance on him and take him abroad and, and develops his, his, his career like that. But it's, it's interesting. And I always get this feel talking um, to people in England because you've got this fantastic league every week and, and, and the FIFA breaks just wreck it. Over here, the FIFA breaks, uh, it's the only time apart from an occasional Copper America, when the continent gets to see the great players that it produces. And those players, there's no on-off relationship with their national teams. Now, they are well aware. They are well aware that there is no high... on the sacrifices that South American players make to play for their national teams are something that European players um, wouldn't even countenance. I remember Mascherano, when he first came to Europe, I was at West Ham and then at Liverpool, and especially at Liverpool, he's surrounded by internationals from other countries. He just couldn't believe how little importance they gave to it. You know, for him and his compatriots and most South Americans, it's everything. And Richarlison talks about in training, he, he's always dreaming he's playing Brazil-Argentina in a World Cup final. You know, that's, that's it for him. It's not a Champions League final, it's that. So and that, that moment, I, I, I find that, that again with the, the national anthems, I find that a magical moment because... The fella, he knows he's important, you know, and I, I think he, he may well be thinking then of, you know, the, the teacher at school who said he was going to be nothing, um, the the girly, the girl, the local girl who snubbed him because he was poor, you know. Look at me now. It's a magical moment. Some of these kind of Brazilian career trajectories that you you kind of sketch out here make make perfect sense. Finding the talent locally and they become big in in Brazil. Then if if they become even bigger, they get exported to to European leagues and become stars there. But there's this kind of other strand of, of Brazilian football exporting, which I find absolutely curious, which is what I would politely term as journeyman Brazilians going and playing for really sort of far-flung East European clubs where you wouldn't necessarily say these are the best of the best, but they seem to be sort of, they seem to find themselves at very curious outposts. And is that meritocracy is, is no, there, no, that, or is that, that just a completely different strand of it? That, that's more the fact that there are agents who, who have specialised in that. So they're more in, they're in the slipstream of the great Brazilians. That means that a market for Brazilians has been created and they can, they can, they can go along with that. But, you know, if they go along with that and then succeed, and then meritocracy can take them higher up the, the ranking. Oh, look at Hafinha of Leeds. No, I, no one knew him really when he got his first Brazil call-up, which is only a few months ago. 
And he won on the game. He saved them from a humiliation of a defeat against against Venezuela. And now it's hard to imagine a, a, a team without him. And I suspect very much that he's going to go to a very, very big club. So, you know, it didn't happen for him one place. Water finding its own level. He's 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 gone elsewhere. You know, if if you're good enough and if you're focused enough and if you're lucky, you steer clear of injuries. I think there's more of a chance in football of finding your level than in almost any other human activity. I mean, f- football is basically the only tool for social mobility in this country. I, I can't speak for Brazil, I, I, but I, social mobility is especially bad here or relative to what it has been in the past. And football is one of the very, very few ways, one of the only ways, which is obviously damning indictment on this country. And, and, and I think that's why sometimes then there's discomfort from politicians or whoever because they 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 feel uncomfortable with it. They're not used to seeing genuine social mobility. And that is what that is when football is amazing. Tim, tell us about your third love of football. Uh, I could make head nor tail of this. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to hearing you explain. Yeah. Uh, I love the post-game triumph of the human being over the motor car. Um, this is, <laughs> I think, this is an English thing. It's an English thing. you got to understand. Um, because so many of our football grounds are, are in residential areas, you know, so you, you get these like pokey little streets. Uh, and when you're in the, the crowd, as it disperses, we've got strength in numbers. The streets belong to us and not to you. Uh, and uh, you, you, can, you can make the car stop. And it, it's such, it, it's an inversion back to sanity in my view i despise the way that cities have been handed over to the motor car uh, <laughs> and uh, so i love these that that those those few minutes are precious to me and it was especially true of uh white hart lane you know because the journey from and if you go into to seven sisters you know there's a fair old walk down the high road uh and by by, by kind of five minutes away from the ground the cars have already kind of won again you know, but mm. for those five minutes, oh, what a sweet triumph! You know, it's ours. The streets belong. I've never to considered us. this ever. Th- th- no, this is really. I have such vivid memories of this as a kid. It was amazing that you could do this, and I remember it made me think that it was absolutely impossible to drive to football matches. And if anything, I I still kind of think that, and I'm so that's had such an imprint on me. Because it was, it, it would just come to a standstill, and you you could cross the road, and you're just like, well, what are you going to do about it? There, there are twenty of us. Um, I I like the way that um, cars are trying to sort of fight back, though, Tim, because um, there seems to be a sort of a select number of countries across the world. I'm saying a maximum of twenty that seem to constantly feature at least one car parked behind the goal as some sort of prize for something. And uh, no one ever explains it. The ball never seems to hit the car either, which I find strange. But yeah, it always seems to be a prize for something or other. So what's it doing there? Just like the phone box behind the American R goal. It's like, why? Why is there a car Indeed. there? Indeed. Let it be vandalised by, by, by football shot at 200 miles an hour. It's what it deserves. hope so. It will happen one day. Indeed. Definitely. Definitely. Um, <laughs> this is great. I'd never even considered the, uh, the power shift of car versus automobile after a game. This is great. What a perspective. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. You're listening to Mesut Harland Dicks with Tim Vickery, who has already blown my mind with the concept of car versus man. On, in the immediate vicinity of a football stadium after a game. I've ne- I'll never think more deeply about it ever again. Tim, let's talk about the flip side of all of this. Your hatreds of football, if I, if I may call them that. Tell us about your first hatred of football then. Yeah, my, my, my first one is... There's a great, great quote from it's Rogan Taylor, you know, the Liverpool academic, that football is like strong beer. Some people just can't take it. And uh, <laughs> it's... I think it's a fabulous quote. Uh, crowds worry me. You know, the the human being collectively has potential for good, but has has potential for bad. You know, being mm-hmm. in the middle of of an angry crowd is is a I find a nasty thing. I mean, football at its worst can become a kind of ninety minute version of Orwell's three minute hate. You know, um, the hate that can be generated. In there, I mean, one of the, one of the things I most love about football is its capacity to to bring people together and to forge international friendships. But we can't deny that the opposite is also is also true. And in, increasingly, I think it can generate enmities. I, I don't like the the hatreds, the the mindless hatred of of the opposition. And in today's world, I think that that can be increasingly dangerous when it's on national lines. Um, I, I despise nationalism. I, I love that 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 quote from the, the first astronaut: you, "You can't see countries from the moon." Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it worries me. You know that, that element of being in the crowd, and now a crowd in a virtual sense as well with with social media. Um, that, that that's something that I feel when I have contact with that through football, I feel dirtied in some respect. I feel that I need a shower afterwards. All right. Um, I'm interested in some of the more kind of mundane ways that football is kind of used as a vehicle for national and regional pride, however misplaced. Um, This might be an awkward segue, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I've always enjoyed at major tournaments, Tim, how England England fans use use England flags to advertise where they're from. And it's always kind of... um, Sort of humble little provincial town. It's exactly it, it's, it's the of. fans you, that don't travel for the Champions League because they're like right. they're all Peterborough fans, aren't they? There's always yeah, a Peterborough one there. 
And you Luton. can understand then why why they'd want to say I'm from Peterborough. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm not an Arsenal fan. I'm not a Liverpool fan. I'm not a Chelsea fan. That's all absolutely fine. But it seems to me a uniquely English thing because I can't remember seeing any other flag at a major tournament with the town written on it. Do, do Brazilian fans go around with sort of Bauru or Joinville written on a Brazilian flag in the middle of the stadium? No. At, at club level, you see this, especially in Argentina, but also in Brazil. You see that the fans will turn up with a banner announcing their 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 neighbourhood. So there is that that sense of locality is expressed as part of 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 the club's support. Also, maybe with with the national teams, because sometimes sometimes they'll, they'll have the shirt of their club side, you know. So there'll be support. I remember meeting here in Brazil for twenty fourteen, meeting supporters from Rosario. And they're, mm. they're wandering around in Rosario Central shirts and proclaiming that Di Maria is better than Messi. So you 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 still get you no know, some some of that. But yeah, I think it's uh, strange. I'll have, to, I'll have to think about this more. It is it is more of an English thing than anywhere else. I have no explanation. Charlie, if I if I may have sounded slightly snooty a moment ago about England fans who who go to major tournaments and have their little town or medium sized town displayed on an England flag, I, I apologise, but. There's, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't even have any hint of snootiness about this because when I went to Euro 2004, I went to the Estadio de Luz to see England beat Croatia 4-2, and I was right at the top of the Estadio de Luz, and behind me, sort of hung on the sort of um, the outer limits of the of the top tier, were loads of England flags with loads of towns written on them, and I turned around. I swear to God, right in front of me was an England flag with the wheat sheaf heatherside written on it which is my local pub from back home, which is absolutely <laughs> insane. Like the smallest world moment. You could, I, I cannot conceive of a smaller world moment than that. So we were sort of looking around going, who is it? Who is it? And then it's just some guy that my brother used to play football with. He said, this is insane. That so was a, thing, a lovely moment. That's that incredible. So that's it. I'm now a fully paid up um, advocate of things written on England flags at major tournaments. Bringing, bringing people together. Yep. Who are already part of the same tribe? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I w- the only thing I would say, Tim, I, I, I completely agree with you, but I do. I think when the balance is right, tribalism is one of football's great qualities, yeah. actually, and I, and I think that's what separates it from a lot of sports. And and without wishing to offend some of our American listeners, I, I, I've been to some, some. I think when you come from football in the UK, and it's. I th- the tribalism also makes people so invested and you feel you're in this thing and all anyone cares about for the 90 minutes is the football. I remember going to baseball. I think it was Yankees-Red Sox and being told before, like, you know, this is the biggest rivalry in American sport. And it was the tamest thing. And I'm not saying I'm encouraging people to not like one another, but it was, I was like, this is rubbish. Like, <laughs> there were barely any chance. I think that the, the most... Sort of intimidating chant was like one guy being like Yankees suck, and, and it was just like, what is this? Like, I and I do think the fact that football, when it doesn't overstep that mark, I think that is still a really great thing. Spot on. Yeah. People people do just care so much about their teams, and that they for those ninety minutes, they you know they they wouldn't want to sit with an opposing fan, and I know that can seem really petty to say rugby fans, but I kind of get that. Like, you don't want to have to temper your behavior and you know it's like having a, a parent there or someone, something <laughs> yeah I, th- I think i think i agree with that it, it, you're right it's all about getting the balance right isn't it tim tell us about your second hatred of football please it never stops on and on and <laughs> on it. it goes um this may well refer more to those of us who make our living from it 
than fans because you know in my days as a fan during the close season you're thinking god how many days to go how many and you're looking at the fixture calendar but when when you're making your living from it and you're you know because when you're a fan you know i would go to maybe 20 25 games a year and that was it you know and the occasional game on the tv now it just takes over your entire life and that feeling blimey it never stops it's exhausting it's exhausting i think for for the players and the coaches when the, the coach you can never be happy there is no point at which you can be happy because you, you ruthlessly you got a, that side that have just won it just um uh, just uh surpassed all expectations you've now got to think about how can i deconstruct that side to make it even better for for for, for next season it is just absolutely exhausting and I, I I don't know how that this affects you, blokes, but you know when when the, when the pandemic struck and there wasn't any for a while. I've spoken to so many of us who make I think, you know what? Whisper it. Don't say that. Don't say <laughs> it. That was all right, wasn't it? I didn't mind that. No, too it much. wasn't. It wasn't. I'm sorry. I'm not even football, football, football. But it wasn't. It was rubbish. It was terrible. I had to go back and watch old football, Tim. <laughs> Um, and usually don't take much encouragement, but even then, my nostalgia well ran dry. I couldn't face it anymore. I needed it back. But um, you know, I, I don't want to turn this into a kind of industry thing. I don't want to talk about. I don't want to have to have Charlie explain about how you know I'm lucky to be doing this for a living. But you know, <laughs> but there are there are moments, of course, where Charlie had to go all the way up to Burnley. I think it was, and it started snowing, and then the game didn't happen. I thought, well, I feel a, a pang of sympathy. But you know, think of the Brazilian equivalent of Charlie Eccleshare because. In, in this, especially the case in Brazil, the relentlessness of football. Because Tim, I need you to explain to me, a Premier League centric man who only understands thirty-eight game league seasons, straight knockout tournaments, and fourteen group stages occasionally. <laughs> how the hell the Brazilian footballing <laughs> calendar functions? I don't get it. I could look into it, but I need you to explain it to me instead. It starts when it starts, and it stops <laughs> when it stops, and then immediately it starts again. That, 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 that's Absolutely more or less insane. all you need. All you need to know. Why? Well, it, 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 because, and it's a permanent quest to try and fit three liters into a bottle that will only hold two. Because it's a it's a country the size of a continent, and where geography hasn't helped, um, it's it's difficult to unify the country in the in the same way as maybe, maybe the United States. There are mountain ranges between coastal cities and so on. So the, the history of the game has been regional rather than national because that was the only thing that was possible given the the, the, the geography of the country. So each it's divided into twenty seven states, and each state has uh, its own regional championship. And for a long time, that was a big deal. Um, they didn't have a, a genuinely national championship until the infrastructure had been improved until 1971. Uh, and uh, they played that side by side, half the year for the state championships, half the year for the, for the national championships. So straight, you've got a lot of football there. The state championships, as they, they are currently constituted, have outlived their usefulness. But the balance of power in Brazil's FA is not with the clubs. It's with the state federations. And they ain't never going to vote for a calendar that removes their championship because it is their course, sole yeah. source of revenue. So you're stuck yeah. with this thing where, where, they're, 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 where you're trying to cram three litres into a bottle uh, uh, holding only two. Um, I've got a longer article on this for those who are interested in the next issue of, of World Soccer, which is great. I think I was really glad to be asked to do it because this kind of more fundamental question of why is something that's rarely asked. You know, the, the questions that are usually asked in football are who? Who's won? You know, but why has someone won this? 
Why is this? Uh, so go out and buy the next edition, the May edition of World Soccer. I bloody will. I bloody will. But Charlie, this I mean, this is interesting because obviously we take the idea of a national championship for granted in, in pretty much every country on earth. You just think, okay, who's top of your league? How does it? And you, you can make a safe assumption of how it works. But Brazil is completely different. And I have to. I'm, I'm going to embrace my naivety here. I, I just. It stuns me. It stuns me that the the idea of a nationwide Brazil league isn't a thing as or isn't the dominant thing and uh, it, it is kind of an enduring curiosity to me and i hope you share it yeah i mean also how you un- i'm just trying to think how unique it is i mean obviously there aren't many countries the size of brazil that or that have as big a football heritage i mean i guess those two things combined um are why that is the case because it can't be very commonplace to, to not have that sort of national structure yeah there there is a national structure but there's a state structure as well that's why you've got so many games because you've got these two entirely separate structures when the the states i believe goes in for the east coast and um, you know and do they call them conferences for some reason i don't know why but but they've got one half and they've got another half and then Mm. the twain meets in the finals isn't isn't that how they do it Something yeah, like more that. or less. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, pretty similar structure to, across all of their sports. But so okay, so we've established this on a kind of structural level, but on an individual level, as, as a football consumer, let alone a football journalist, uh, quite simply, Tim, how many consecutive games in a day is your limit? How many how many football games in a row can you physically watch? I can do three, and quite often, often I have to do three. And I'll do three tonight, and I'll do three tomorrow, and the three tonight will be after watching Chelsea Real Madrid. Okay. So uh, wow. yeah, and that, that's every day is like a World Cup day for you. Well, a, a, yeah, a, a little bit, a little bit. Um, <laughs> we're, we're just starting our Champions League, the Libertadores, so I want to see it as as much as possible. Um, it does, it does, and th- this is one of the reasons that I put this down as a reason for for hating it. It does make me a moron. You know, there, there are <laughs> there are times when I just want to think about something else. No, I get you now. That's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't sympathise with you on a kind of pandemic-wide level. You know, no football for six months, not happy. But no football for like two hours, that's fine. But yeah, Charlie, I mean, football fatigue. We've talked about this a lot on this podcast before, um, and we are having to can have to steel ourselves for the World Cup, where we will have four games a day for eight straight days. So um, I asked our listeners what the kind of routine parts of football that really, really make a four-game day unbearable. Um, this was the standout answer from Patch JS. He said, if it's a game you really aren't bothered about, half time is such a drag. I often change the channel and then and just kind of forget to go back. And then when I go back, <laughs> it's like the 58th minute. And then I wonder if it's worth bothering watching the rest. I, 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 I feel that sensation so viscerally in my heart. I must have done that dozens of times in my life. And I just think, what am I doing now? Do I watch the rest of this? Can't be asked. There is something with, though, like with any binge activity you do get to a point where you just feel a bit dirty and you're like oh this is it's gone too far like i hung over in the same way that kind of you know midway through drinking you might if you start early and you're just i mean i remember last season a couple of times for work having to watch all uh all four of the games on a sunday when they were packed in because of the pandemic and that would, by the end, by the last game, you're like, I, I can't really do this anymore. It is possible to fall out with, of love with football in the space of, say, 10 hours, Tim. I'm convinced of this. Yeah, I mean, 
both emotionally, if your team has played a big game and lost in a in a disappointing fashion, you fall out of love with it. But also the the, the kind of the kind of overload. I and mean, there there are, there are times during as one of those games drifts when all I want to do is just I just want to put some music on. You know, I just want to want to yeah. want to drift off. I want I want to think about about something else. And but it, it's it's hard. I don't know if you find this, but it's it's hard to kind of half watch a game, isn't it? You know, if uh, yeah. and you know, really I've, I've 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 got to have the pen and paper, and I've got to be drawing the tactical diagrams and so on. I, oh right, I, okay. I have to be engaged. If not, then it's not work, and my mind is kind of wandering off. Okay, right. Finally, then let's get tactical. Let get let's get aesthetical. Let's get vertical. Because I want you, I want to hear about your third <laughs> hatred of football, please. Really looking forward to this. The, the third hate, uh, and it, it, it's something that so, uh, drives me mad. Watching is the ball being passed straight forward. As a general rule, it's a terrible, terrible thing, and it's not talked about enough. And it should be. What is, gentlemen, the definition of a good pass? I will put it to you: that the definition of a good pass is one in which the person receiving the ball has the option to play first time. And if the ball is being played straight forward, then that that usually means that the person receiving the ball is is back to goal and doesn't have a panorama. And sometimes it can work if you pass straight up and he he has a has a simple pass back and then the next one goes forward, then that can that that can work. That, that that's a nice little move. But the amount of goals I see given away. Because a defender passes straight forward and the player receiving the ball, he's got no panorama and it's, it's, it's relatively easy to take the ball from him. So the amount of goals that I see that result from turnovers starting from the ball being played straight forward, it, it just seems so basic to me that the way in football to go forward is diagonally. The best teams are always set up to pass the ball diagonally. So th- this is something I, I'm, I'm always looking for now. Since since my mind kind of processed, oh, yeah, yeah, that that is the error that I'm seeing again and again and again. Now, it's one of those things that drives me mad when I'm watching a game. You know, the centre-back just playing straight forward because it's bad, bad football. Well, yeah, we've got Charles Reap on next week, so I'll ask we'll ask him what he thinks about this. But um, okay, so I'm not I'm, I'm not necessarily getting the vibe that you're advocating kind of possession football for possession's sake. No. But in in Brazilian football, which which I think it's safe to say, I, I don't feel like I'm embracing cliche too much here to say that it's a completely different rhythm to watching, say, a Premier League game for, for better or worse. But in Brazilian football, do they still? Would you still say here like a groan? When the ball is kind of passed backwards yes. or sideways, yes. when it massively gone forward, massively. Do they still have it in their vocabulary. Massively, it's it's a real problem actually. The impatience of the crowd, right? Uh, and some of the foreign coaches who've come to Brazil have really remarked on this. You know that when the ball is in the zone of elaboration, the midfield. What? What? Sorry, what's this? <laughs> the zone of elaboration. You got you got what one zone for to, to defend. You got one zone to elaborate, and you got one zone to finish. Oh, this is great. 
Is the zone of elaboration in midfield? Yes. Essentially? Yeah. yeah but because what, Charlie, you have to get zone of elaboration into your next Tottenham match report. That noted. is a fact. Because <laughs> what an incredible phrase. What, what are you trying to do in that? You see how my thinking about football has been contaminated by Spanish and Portuguese. Because what are you what are you trying to do in in, in that that sector of the field? You're trying to set up the play. You know, there are three functions in football: win the ball back, set up the play, and 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 finish. Uh, and so that that where you're trying to set up the play, that that's the zone where you're looking to to um, to elaborate. And uh, foreign coaches of uh, sorry, <laughs> this is languages. It it it, it, confused, it addles the mind. Um, so foreign coaches have commented that when the ball comes there, the the, the crowd are so impatient that they just want it forward. They just want it straight forward, and they'll groan right, if okay. they'll groan if it goes backwards. Imagine if Graham Potter moved over there. He'd be absolutely frazzled by all this, hot on the heels of Brighton fans shouting, shoot. And, you know, he'd want his players just keep the ball in the zone of elaboration and they'd yeah. all be well, screaming. We, we, had, we had a, a former Guardiola assistant over here, Dominic Torrent, who was his assistant mm. at Barcelona and at uh, Bayern, I think, and at City. And um, didn't work for him. They didn't, didn't want it. You know, there's a lot of moaning about Spain going on here. I mean, the, the word that the, mm. the, 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 the TV pundits use more than anything else is objective meaning vertical meaning direct you know it, right. it's one of, I, I remember i remember brazilian tv showing an argentina game and honestly within the first three minutes they were complaining about argentina not being objective enough not being direct enough oh, wow you, you you have to bury some of your preconceptions to get into this which is one of the, one of the great things about going to a foreign culture you have to work out what's reality and and and, and what's myth um and and uh so that you you clearly see in the zone of elaboration the lack of patience from the crowd <laughs> transmitting itself to the players. Ah, I see that old classic. I'd love to know how early nineties Cambridge United would get on in uh, in the Paulista or something these days. That'd be great to see. They, they love those. But it, it got me thinking, and I wanted to open a can of worms with our listeners, Tim about their least aesthetically satisfying footballing acts. Your, your one is simply kicking the ball forward. So let's see where we go mm. from there. Um, Lee Payne says, goal kicks are a complete waste of time. It's odd that we still haven't come up with a more interesting way to restart play. Now, Charlie, we've, we've got the short goal kick. That has gone some way to easing that problem, hasn't it? We get on with it a little bit quicker now, don't we? Mm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that certainly makes it a lot more interesting to watch. And it means it's more just sort of outfielders have the ball on the floor, less just hoofing it. Mm. And some and keepers though will play that straight pass forward, the sort of the one you're sort of describing, Tim. And maybe that's leading to some of the goals being given away as well. That's quite a new pass that keepers it's have like to a have in their locker. Now, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's seen as a, um very much a positive. Mm. Next one, Tim, this is from Joshua Edwards, who says a miscontrolled throw in and a loss of possession is like nails on a chalkboard. I mean, I, th- I think wherever you are in the world, I, th- I think this this completely takes national styles of play out of the equation. A throw-in that someone miscontrols, I think might well be the least satisfying thing that football could ever produce. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that, that nails on a blackboard is, is fantastic, isn't it? Because it, it, you're right, it's so irritating. Or when they try and return it to the thrower and he miscontrols it and it rolls yeah, out and yeah. you're like, oh, now we have to have another throw-in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, throw-ins generally, I think, are a waste of time. Should just be roll-ons. Just get them done quicker. Yeah, too right, too right. I mean, and I mean, no, we did the drills in training when we were nine. You know, throw it to someone, they chest it, do it back. If you can't do it by then, you can't do it when you're 29, <laughs> you're in real trouble. Uh, next up, Michael Zviauer 
writes in Charlie, says, For me, the least aesthetically pleasing football act is a fullback running all the way to the opposition box and then cutting inside instead of crossing. I mean, I mean we are obsessed with cutting inside, but, um, the, the, you know, there's a purist in me that just wants the ball to be put in the mix and just get on with it. Dillying and dallying. Well, the, the fullback is I, probably least qualified to cut inside onto his wronger foot. On his, yeah. you know, so you probably don't want that from him. Although if he if he does it, you know if he, if he can cut it on his wrong foot and just curl it into the into the far mm. corner, is there anything better? Well, well yeah, I, I really like wrong foot uh, curls, but Adam, you're you, you've oh, always been a staunch it. opponent. I think of, this might be where we really do cross swords the most. Like it's <laughs> mm. where we are completely incompatible as human beings. You like people cutting in and curling it in. I don't. Mm. Mm. It's true. It's true. No no such issues with Conte Spurs though, of course, because they are pure. You know. Go down the line, get it in there. Well, although they had Matt Doherty playing on as a left wing back the other day, and he did, he scored. In fact, he did assist one doing exactly that. He dummied the cross, chopped, as they say, onto his good foot, his right foot, and put in a low cross that was Fair scored. Enough. Fair enough. Um, this is a very niche one, Tim. Millpool writes in and says, forcefully chesting the ball off with a dipping shoulder motion. Does make it look like a player is dancing badly to status quo. I kind of, I kind of understand this because yeah. because yeah. It, it is aesthetically annoying to see, but also you get the implication from the player that they think they're being really clever about it as well. So, oh, look at this! I'm using my chest to propel the ball, not just cushion it. So, I think it's an all-round 360-degree yeah, irritation. I think it's only truly irritating if it's done with Francis Rossi-style lank, long hair. Because <laughs> then, then it is full status quo. If not, I yeah. can I, I can just about live with it. I think. Okay, no, fair enough. Yeah. Good to have some rational <laughs> thinking here. That's good. Um, Charlie, least aesthetically satisfying. This is from Dan Mahoney. Is a big centre back trying to shepherd the ball out for a goal kick, realizing he's in a bit of trouble, might not be able to, and being forced to do an awkward <laughs> clearance on the turn <laughs> that inevitably goes out for a, a throw in mere yards away. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna branch this out to include all clearances made under pressure by defenders who are at an awkward angle and can't really turn around enough. Because you know that clearance is never going to go where they need it to. And if anything, it's going to go to the opposition's feet. So just boot it out for a throw-in if you think you're not going to be able to get the elevation or the torque involved. <laughs> but there is something particularly funny about how much of a climb-down it is when you're like, yeah, I'm going to shepherd it out. And then having to be the bigger person and be like, yeah, that's not that's not going to reach, is it? I've just got to hoof it out. That was a, that was a waste of time. Yourself, isn't it? Yeah, fair, fair blazing for doing it. Yeah, I mean, guys, right. throw one in is is loopy headed goals, and and the new Wembley soon after it started seemed to be an absolute haven. I think it was the nets they had or something. Those headers that just kind of loop it. They're not bullets or anything like that. They're just kind of sort of far post affairs that go back the other way. Yeah, and just like mm. there's long, they're long enough in the air for you to be like, is that going to go in? I think it's going to go I in. I can't think of a looping header that's ever really got me out of my seat. You know, aesthetically. Um, yeah, that's rubbish. Last couple. Tim, I'm fully on board with this one as well from AY, who says, uh, goalkeepers clearing the ball upfield with their weaker foot. I mean, <laughs> if anything, it's quite relatable. It makes mm. it brings us closer to the professional game because it's great to see a, a player really, really going, oh, have I really got to do this? Kick it with my foot. There's a, there's a fabulous Palais story. When, and his, his son tried to be a goalkeeper. It's a rather troubled son. He's rather, you know, he's Fredo, really. It's not easy being a son, Fredo. No. And he, he played a, a bit for Santos, but he, he was never, never really good enough. But all he ever wanted was his dad to love him and praise him. That's all he ever wanted. He just wanted his dad's praise. And he had this good game in goal. And he kept a clean sheet. And his dad was watching. And he was, ah. But it was a game where he hadn't taken the goal kicks. 
because he'd suffered an injury, he'd suffered a, a foot injury. Right. So he met his dad after the game, ready to expect this praise. And Pele just said to him, why don't you take the goal kicks? Oh, I've got an injury. What, can't you kick with your left foot? That tells you a lot. Oh. Tells you a lot about Pele, tells you a lot about his son as well, Fredo. My goodness. Oh, that also sounds like that. Yeah, that sounds a lot like that Kelsey Grammer film. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's almost an identical plot. I wonder if that film has been based on... Uh, Pelé and his sons. Yeah, just to bring you up to speed. Just to bring you up to speed, Tim. There is a, a film that has has come out in America for one night only, where Kelsey Grammer of Frasier fame plays a football coach who has to grudgingly pick his son in his team, uh, purely for uh, some sort of administrative reason. And it, and amazingly, it reinforces their bond, and everybody, everybody's happily ever after. <laughs> great, isn't it? Sounds great. Going to be watching it. Uh, no, no, I don't even know. I don't know who Ted Lasso Lasso is. People keep mentioning mentioning him to me, but I, I'm going to have to plead age and ignorance. It, well, put it this way: if you don't watch it this year, you'll never watch it. Uh, let's put it put it that way. Um, finally, Charlie, I really like this one from Knuckle Panday. This is more of a timing thing than a technique thing, perhaps. He says when an attacking player jumps too early and ends up heading the ball while on the way down, resulting in a flailing, <laughs> dying fish motion and the ball going off in some geometrically unlikely angle. Yeah, I completely agree. This. Any header performed as the, as a player comes down from the sky is inherently unsatisfying. Yeah, I think I think because when they're doing things that are hard, you you kind of want them to make them look easy, and you know. But when they do that, it's like oh, that's sort of that's how I would mess that up. Whereas something like the goal kicks, I don't know because it's so difficult anyway. That there's something a bit more relatable about that. I don't know. The the, the headers just you just want them to be better than that, like the loopy ones. Tim, we started this podcast on a very very high level of discourse, and we've got down to perhaps the most granular level that we could possibly get. This is how it was always going to pan out, I'm afraid. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've loved it. I've had, I've had, a, I've had a ball. Thank you for having me. Thank you for Fantastic. putting up with me. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. I mean, in, in my eyes, you know, I feel like because you're so far away, it should be like commentary on, on the BBC in, in a crack East European game from the 1990s you should have been talking like this and we would have to guess what you were saying but wonderful that technology has allowed this to happen tim vickery live in a way all the way from rio de janeiro for meza harland dicks thanks to you tim my pleasure thank you have a lovely day in the 22 degrees cheers, I will. cheers to you charlie cheers and we'll see everybody next week cheerio the athletic <laughs>